This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, Dr. Kevin DeYoung preaches on 2 Corinthians 5, verses 16 and 17. Dr. DeYoung is the senior pastor of Christ's Covenant Church in Matthews, North Carolina. This was originally recorded as a sermon delivered at the 2022 General Assembly in Birmingham. Let's listen as Dr. DeYoung preaches God's Word. Wonderful to be with you tonight. This is really one of the great privileges that you can have in ministry to preach to 2,000 presbyters and families. It's wonderful. Not that with the lights I can see any of you. But it's wonderful. It is a great privilege. And I I, I know that this is true of all of us here, I trust. I love the Presbyterian Church in America. I love our doctrines. I love our fellowship. I love our mission. And having been here for seven plus years, I can almost say I love the RAO and the BCO. And I love all of the people that know all of those by heart. Thank you. I am bullish on the PCA. I am optimistic, not in ourselves, but with good cause, I think, hopeful in what the Lord is doing through us and will do in us to change us and transform us and to use us as we are faithful to the Word of God and the Reformed faith to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to our neighbors and to the nation. So it is wonderful to be with you here tonight. My text is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Two verses. Two familiar verses. I hope you'll turn in your Bibles there as we'll be looking at these and a few other verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 16 and 17. From now on, therefore... We regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask for your help 
in the middle of this service, before this sermon, at the end of these days together in this assembly, we do not want to engage in wasted religious activity. And so we pray, because we need your help, that you would give us ears to hear. I pray, O Lord, that you would give me a humble heart, a feeling sense of the things that I'm about to preach, and that you would send your Holy Spirit, that by his unction and by his work, these dear people would hear a better sermon than the one that I'm about to preach. So open our ears that we may hear wonderful things from your word in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure you've noticed before that at different eras in the history of the church, the church has been called upon to address different questions and controversies. In the first century, we can tell from the epistles in the New Testament that the Jew-Gentile question dominated the church, how to make sense of this new age in which they were living, and Jew and Gentile coming together. Or you can look at the fourth century and know that the church had to deal with Trinitarian doctrine and heresies, or the fifth century, Christological questions and the two natures of Christ. You could almost track century by century. Of course, you come to the Reformation in the 16th century, that doctrine on which the church stands or falls, the doctrine of justification. It also had everything to do with the doctrine of the church and the sacraments. Or you go to the 17th century and think about the canons of Dort or the debates with the Amaraldians and the extent of the atonement and the nature of Reformed faith and the doctrines of grace. Or the 20th century, you might say, the doctrine of Scripture. And it isn't that any of these controversies or questions ever really leave us. They're evergreen. They always come back. But it is true at different moments in the history of the church, God gives to us different questions and controversies. And many times, I don't know if you're like this, I have thought rather wistfully, if only I could have been born in some other era. And we tend to look very nostalgic at the issues that might have seemed simpler or better or purer or less divisive at other times. remember reading David Calhoun's wonderful two-volume history of old Princeton and feeling sort of nostalgic for those good old days. And then I read this paragraph that Charles Hodge medical treatment was to attach 15 leeches. And I thought, nostalgia gone. (laughs) But it's tempting to think... Oh, if only we were in some other era. Oh, if the 16th, that would have been wonderful. Justification by faith and imputation and versus inherent and imputed righteousness. Oh, that would be great to get into all. But of course, none of those things felt easy in the 16th century. By some distance, perhaps, and because we have now confessional markers, they can seem safe, but they weren't safe in the 16th century. It was divisive. It was difficult. I'm sure they wish they had been in some other century. So we cannot choose the times in which we live and the issues that come to us to be dealt with. And I don't think I'm stating anything controversial when I say that in the first half of the 21st century, the issue facing the Church of Jesus Christ, at least in the West, is the issue of anthropology. Sex, gender, race, ethnicity, abortion... LGBTQ and all of the letters and all of the initials. These are issues of anthropology. Who are we? What does it mean to be human? How do we understand our desires? What should we do or not do 
with our bodies? What is the truest part of me? What makes me really me? What is my identity? On all of these points, our world is massively confused. On the one hand, the world tells you, it tells us that our identity is fixed and immutable. It tells us that the way we think, the way we organize power, has everything to do with our sex, our orientation, our race, our class, and those categories into which you are born define you and define the way we do things. And on the other hand, the world also tells us that our identity is completely malleable, open to self-direction and self-definition. You are what you feel. Your authentic self is that unencumbered self. How many after-school specials, they, that's the boy, I was born in the 80s, or the 70s actually, grew up in the 80s, they don't have those anymore, but whatever you, you kids find on your devices these days. How many movies, how many specials tell us that this secret, the answer, is to find deep down inside of you the real you? The world cannot decide if who you are is already determined by the intersection of a few identity markers, where you were born, your sex, your race, your desires, or if who you are is determined by your own pursuit of self-discovery and self-expression. The world is utterly confused. The Bible, of course, doesn't use the word identity. It's not a word that we find in our Reformed confessions. And it is, as many of us recognize, a somewhat evolving, unstable term. And yet, the Bible and our Reformed faith give us some of the tools to address the questions that people are asking. And in particular, I've chosen this text because I believe we need to pay more attention to the doctrine of regeneration. If you know your history of the church and the Great Awakening... That doctrine, which was perhaps preached most poignantly, was that ye must be born again. The Westminster Confession doesn't actually have a section called regeneration. It has effectual calling, but it does give this gloss of a definition of regeneration in 13.1. Quote, having a new heart and a new spirit created in us. What are the implications as we think about identity. What are the implications of having a new heart and a new spirit created in us? This is not going to be a theological, philosophical treatise on that word, identity. It's a difficult word. And yet, on a very simple level, we all have kind of a sense of what we're talking about because virtually everyone in this assembly came here with some kind of identification. You needed a driver's license to drive here, to show to the TSA. You needed a passport to get here. So we understand on a basic conceptual level what it is to have an identification. You pull that out, and there's a, a picture of you, probably a really fantastic picture of you, 
I don't even know why TSA ever lets me in with what my passport picture looks like. The only thing worse than when you, you know, tell your, your wife or your friends, this picture is terrible of me, and they say, yeah, it's terrible. The only thing worse is when they say, no, that, that's kind of what you look like. So you all, you all have those identity. And what does it do? It gives a picture so that someone else can identify you. Yep, yep, yep. I can see that that's you. And then there's a few stats there. Blue eyes, six foot three, muscular. I mean, that's just what it says. I'd like to, I think it should say sandy blonde, but it says just gray. And you have a number, social security, driver's license, passport number, just a few things there that someone can identify you. We understand on a conceptual level. So what does it mean, to carry the analogy, what does it mean that your personal ID says, stamped at the very top, in Christ, stamped at the very top, regenerate, Born again. New creation. What difference, in other words, does our Christian anthropology make in understanding the deepest questions of our age? If Lady Gaga is right, and we have been born this way, what difference does it make that as Christians we have been born again a different way? I want to make two points from this text. One point from verse 16 and one point from verse 17. And I'll just alert you that the first point is much longer than the second, lest you panic that I have not planned well. Point number one, because we have been changed by God, we do not look at others in the same way. And point number two, because we have been changed by God, we do not look at ourselves in the same way. So you can think of point number one, new eyes, Point number two, new identity. Point number one, because we have been changed by God, we do not look at others in the same way. You see, verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. If you could see the Greek, you'd see that phrase, according to the flesh, modifies the verb to regard, not the noun no one. So Paul is not saying we no longer look at people as flesh, though that might be true in one sense. He's saying we no longer look at people in a fleshly way. The NIV gets the sense of it. We regard no one from a worldly point of view. Regarding others according to the flesh means we look at them the way the world looks at them. So we have to think, what do we do differently as Christians? What does it mean that we no longer regard people according to the flesh? Well, again, you look at the verse 16, therefore, whenever you see a therefore, you ask what the therefore is, therefore. The therefore in verse 16 directs our attention to the previous verses. In particular, three places where a new way of looking at one another is implied. Not regarding people according to the flesh means we change our viewpoint in at least three ways. So yes, if you're taking notes, this is all big point number one, three subpoints. I'm cheating. First then, under this 
first subpoint, first big point. We no longer judge others by outward appearances. Now, where do I get that? I get that from verse 12. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. So surely that is part of Paul's contrast. Worldly people size up others based on worldly standards. They value the things the world values, whatever that list may be. High cheekbones, slender waist, muscular physique, the car you drive, the size of your house, the the connections you have, the power you wield, the degrees you hold, the people you know. That's how the world sizes people up. Now let's just add a parenthesis here. Uh, We should not pretend that we don't actually see things. We're kidding ourselves and we think we're so spiritual we don't notice when people are short or tall or black or white or big or small. We, we, we can see those things. So when we talk about being colorblind, well, there's a good sense of that word. There's a reason why uh, Lady Justice is often depicted with a, a blindfold because the scales of justice are supposed to have uh, impeccable impartiality. It doesn't have any regard to the person in front of the bar of justice. But of course, we, we should not say colorblind if we think we mean in a literal way, I don't see any color. No, you, you can see what people are like. So this isn't asking us to do the impossible, to pretend that these things have no bearing on anything in life. Certainly they have. And sometimes in our history as a nation, in very tragic and sinful ways. What we must not do is regard people by those things. So we must not size them up assess their value, put them in a box, determine whether we like them or not, give them deference, ignore them based on what verse 12 calls outward appearances. Now this sounds like the sort of stuff you tell your kids when they go off to kindergarten. But sometimes we need to relearn the basics because this is a temptation in every human heart. There are certain types of people you have a hard time loving. Certain types of people I have a hard time loving. Maybe it's the very beautiful people of the world. You know the old Beatles song, How Does It Feel to Be One of the Beautiful People? Baby, you're a rich man. You see those sort of people and you know instantly that you don't like them. Or it's the sort of people that don't seem to dress the right way or keep their house as clean as you would like or don't have the smell that you're used to or it's people who have an accent and you travel enough and you're bound, you'll sometime be the person with the accent. I thought Midwestern is just how normal people spoke. Turns out it's an accent to some folks. Or you don't like rednecks or you don't like downtown people. There are always certain types of people we are quick to judge based on outward appearance. And we're all good at this. Now, when you put that together with power, it can lead to very disastrous consequences. But for all of us, it's not prone to any one group. It's true of every one of us. We just put people in categories. Okay, boomer. (laughs) We know what boomers are like. We know what millennials are like. Somewhere in the middle, you just skipped over my generation with Gen X. Forgotten. I know what they're like. They live on the the coasts. They live in flyover country. 
Homeschoolers, we know what they're like. Public school, white, black. It is easy to regard people by outward appearances to think that we, we know, we understand what makes them tick based on outward appearance or where they're from or who their daddy was. I moved five years ago from Michigan to North Carolina. Lived my whole life before that north of the Mason-Dixon line. And I'm very glad from where I'm from and I'm very glad for where I live now. But they are different places. Sometimes there's, it's hard to know what that other place is like. Sometimes talk to people in the south and it's sort of just very puzzling. So you lived, you, you, you chose, people choose to live in Michigan? You have igloos, right? It's like Hans Brinker and you're skating to, to work and school and snowshoes and, and, all, and you never see the sun for six months? And, well, that is true. Yes, yes, people do and some people like it. And then I'm telling you that people up in the north often don't understand the south. I remember uh, when I was living in Michigan and I was traveling for a conference and I went, and I think the conference was in Indianapolis. And I got back and I was talking to a friend of mine in the church and he said, oh, so you were gone. How was it, Kevin? Oh, it was good. And, uh, and he said, now you were, uh, you were in Texas? He said, no, I was in Indianapolis. And he said, complete straight face. He said, oh, I knew you were someplace in the south. I've never heard people from Indiana and Texas think that they were in the same place. But it is objectively true. If you're in Michigan, it's all south. If you're going to Canada, and that's fun, but it's, it, it is south. And sometimes we think that we understand somebody. And that's the way you do things here. And there's no problem with regional differences, family differences. The problem, especially in the body of Christ is when we think we got a three or four little characteristics to check the box and then we got you figured out. We sort of know what you're about. We know what you're like. We know why you are the way that you are. But this should not be so for Christians because we worship a God who did not look to most people like a God. That's what Paul means in the second half of verse 16. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Most of the crowds misjudge the Lord Jesus right up to the end. Paul says, I once regarded him according to the flesh. I once persecuted his body. They looked at Jesus. They saw just another man, just another prophet, just another teacher. Worse than that. From outward appearances, it looked as though he had been a failure. He had no form or majesty that we should be attracted to him. He was rejected, despised by his own people. He had nowhere to lay his head. He had no friends at the hour of his deepest need. He was killed as a criminal. Surely where there's smoke, there's fire. He didn't seem to keep the Sabbath or love the temple or care about ritual purity. They thought he was a blasphemer, a crazy man, a dangerous man. They had Jesus sized up, figured out, nailed down, literally. But they were regarding him according to the flesh, Paul says. And we regard him thus no longer. This is a room 
full of hundreds of people who by God's grace have learned to regard Jesus in a different way. We know him to be the Son of Man and the Son of God. We see him high and lifted up, exalted at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, coming again to judge the living and the dead. We see him as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, as the Lamb who was slain. We know who he is, but we would not have known him if we regarded him according to the flesh, by outward appearances. Why would we make the same mistake in judging others? Let me add another important qualification. When you become a Christian, and I hope this is obvious, you don't cease to have any other identity. You don't cease to be white or black or Asian or Hispanic. You don't cease to be male or female. You don't cease to be young or old. It isn't that being stamped born again means we lose all other identities. We know this from the Bible. God made us by his design male and female. He has given to us different roles in the church and in the home. God is glorified in heaven and here on earth with the presence of saints from every tribe, language, people, and nation around the throne. So being a Christian does not mean every other thing about your identity card is erased. What it does mean is you now have a better, greater, far more important, fundamental identity which changes everything. You are a new creation in Christ. And that means something with how we view one another. Have you ever been traveling in a foreign country and you're eager to get home and you're waiting in line and you're tired, you've been gone a long time and you're feeling lonely, out of place and maybe people are speaking a language you don't understand and you happen to glance at someone else in the line and I'll just say this as, as an American and you look and you see, ah, they have a blue passport, and it's got the eagle on the front, and it says United States of America, and there's a little something in you, a little pep in your step, as you realize, even though you don't know anything else about this person, we're citizens in the same country, and we are going at some point to the same home. And how much more, if you feel that in an earthly sense, should it be with our Christian brothers and sisters to look around this room, instead of judging on outward appearances, to say, look at that passport. <laughs> We're citizens from the same country. We're going to the same home. We don't judge people according to the flesh anymore. The world knows how to do that. The world is in the business of slicing up the human population into ever smaller tribes and interest groups whose existence is predicated upon being in conflict with all those other tribes and interest groups. And sometimes you can't help but to have conflict. We're not pie in the sky about it. Sometimes the opposite of culture war is not culture peace, but culture capitulation. But listen carefully. We are never going to have anything unique to offer in this world. No message of gospel grace, no message of saving good news, if we can't start by telling people all that we have in common. We are all descended from Adam. We are all guilty in Adam. 
We have all inherited a corrupt nature through Adam, and as such, the only Savior who can save us, all of us, is a second Adam. If we don't start by telling people all the things that we have in common, we have no ground to give them the good news. The only name given among men whereby we must be saved. Yes, of course, different experiences. Of course, different cultures. Of course, different experiences of suffering. And yet, to be able to tell anywhere in the world that fundamentally there is a human nature and people are more alike than they are different and the problem facing all of us is the same at this age as it was in any age and will be for every age to come that we are sinners in need of a Savior. We no longer regard people according to the flesh. We don't size them up in the same way. Second, each point will get shorter. Second, subpoint, we no longer see people as mere flesh and bones, but as immortal beings who will stand before God for judgment. That's a C.S. Lewis idea, talking about the, the weight of glory and looking at each person. And if you could see them and sort of unveiled, you would be tempted to worship them as some sort of godlike creature. Well, where do I get this in the text? Well, look at verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Now, why do we persuade others? Well, you go up to verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So here's Paul's thinking. We know that every human being we come in contact with will one day have to stand before the Lord Jesus. And that gives a sense of purpose and animates a sense of urgency because we know it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God when you have no blood to atone for your sins. So Paul is reasoning that we do not look at people the same way because we know that these are human beings who are destined for an eternity in heaven or hell with an immortal soul. That's not how the world looks at people. The world is, is geared, and it's that very thing that you have in your pocket, to make you forget that you have a soul, that anything lasts beyond this life, that there are bigger, deeper questions than just stimulus and response, that you're more than brainwaves and chemical reactions, that you're more than the sum of your genes or molecules. The world looks at people as customers or consumers or super-evolved monkeys or an organism like a plant with no more rights than a sloth or a stalk of wheat. In the world of a bureaucracy, you're nothing but a, a social security number, a tax ID number, a cog in the machine. If you call customer service, you'll be another phone on the line and the call may be monitored for quality assurances. But not so with Jesus. And not so for those who have been born again by His Spirit, we understand that everyone with whom we come in contact has an immortal soul. And so we do not look at people as instruments for our happiness, obstacles to our joy, something or someone who just stands in our way of our sleep, our money, our comfort. But born again by the Spirit, controlled by the love of God, 
moved by the fear of the Lord, we no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. We know that they are made in the image of God. We see someone created by the same God, born with the same nature, in need of the same Christ. That's what helps us overcome suspicions, fears, prejudices. It's the gospel. My grandfather fought in World War II against the Japanese in the Pacific Theater. He saw harrowing action. He heard things, saw things that stayed with him for the rest of his life that he barely could talk about. And when he returned from the war, honesty compels me to say he did not think well of the Japanese. They were to him fierce, cruel, he thought, enemies of his country, bombed, killed. But later in life at his church, he would grow and through forgiveness, repentance, and the transformation that only can come from the gospel. He worked with a ministry reaching out to Japanese immigrants in the community as the gospel taught him what he needed to learn and all of us need to learn, that we do not regard people according to the flesh. Isn't this true? We all know this deep down to be true. You want somebody to get to know you. You want somebody to give you the benefit of the doubt and not think they just got you sized up by all sorts of features and appearances and where you're from and sound of your voice. We no longer see our brothers and sisters, thirdly, as sinners chiefly, but as new creations. Now, where do I get this? I get it from verse 14 and 15. One died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. You see the logic there? The reason you can look at people no longer according to the flesh is because that person in the flesh died. Of course you look at them differently. Now we understand the Bible tells us, our Reformed confessions tell us, personal experience tells us that even when you're born again, there is much remaining corruption in us. We're new, but there's still indwelling sin. So two years ago at the start of the pandemic, we got ahead of the curve and we, when everything was shutting down and we got an above ground pool in our backyard because my wife and I have a bazillion kids. And we got it. And so I've had two winters now to figure out how to cover this thing and how to uncover it. First year, didn't tie it tight and, you know, all the rainwater gets in and the dirt and the leaves. And so second year, tied it really tight, proud of myself. Come the beginning of April, I'm taking this off. I buy a pump. I put it on there, hours, pumping off all the rainwater that's accumulated for many months over the winter. And I'm pulling this off slowly because there's just a pile of sludge, dirt, leaves. And as I try with all my mind, thinking that I'm just rolling this off of the pool, it all comes out the back end, right into the pool. And if I... We're not a believer in the perseverance of the saints. Could have lost my salvation right there. I was so mad, so frustrated. We're still vacuuming up those leaves that have disintegrated into dirt at the bottom of the pool. It takes constant 
effort to remove impurities, to make it clean. So it was new. All winter, my kids said, now can I jump in the pool? Kids, there's a cover on the pool. (laughs) No, you can't jump in the pool. Now you can. It's dirty. So we understand something new. It's not perfect. We're born again, many impurities, much indwelling sin. But listen, Paul wants us, as we no longer regard each other according to the flesh, to understand what has died. So that brother in Christ who frustrates you to no end, don't look at him now. Maybe you are looking at him now. That that sister in Christ who drives you crazy. All of that. They're a true born-again Christian. That's dead. Christ died for that. And we can look around and we see in our brothers and sisters the anger, the lust, the pity, the misplaced desires, the bitterness, the covetousness, the cynicism, all of that. And before we are quick to judge, we ought to think, well, that is something for which Christ died. And He died for it in me too. And how might I then live and pray and serve and preach so that what is new in them might live rather than what has been put to death? Which leads to the second, much briefer, last main point. New eyes, new identity. Because we have been changed by God, we do not look at ourselves in the same way. That's verse 17. If anyone is in Christ. I'm sure you've studied that massively important phrase, in Christ. It occurs 83 times in Paul's letters, so it's a big deal. To be in Christ means you share in His life, in His death, in His resurrection. It means His blessings are your blessings. His Spirit is in you to make you more like Him. Galatians 3.26, In Christ Jesus, you are sons of God through faith. So faith... Not the meritorious cause, but the instrumental cause by which all of those blessings come to us. In Christ, you have a new identity. doesn't erase everything about your old identity, but you've got a new card. And it's stamped with something right across the top that defines now everything about you. A new nature, a new heart, new motivation, new spirit, new desires. You're not a slave to wickedness any longer, a slave to righteousness, Romans 6. No longer a son of disobedience, a child of God. Not a stranger from God, his friend. Not in darkness, but in light. No longer serving the prince of this world, but the king of kings. You know what happened on Easter. A new order broke in. The new age colliding with the old. So that Aslan is on the move. Starts with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and His ascension and then the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost. And now, in every human heart regenerated by the power of God, there is a new age breaking in. God has brought a new age on the earth. And that new creation has started in you. And it doesn't matter if you cannot think of a day where you didn't know Jesus. By God's grace, that's my story. 
We love boring testimonies. And we love all the testimonies of God's grace. Whether you can point to a day or not, whether it seems dramatic or not, or maybe you were like David or John the Baptist and you were quickened in the womb. At some point in each of our lives, if you're a genuine Christian, it took a miracle on par with the resurrection of Jesus Christ to bring you to newness of life. We're an assembly of miracles. Let us not forget who we are and what God has done for us. When Satan reminds you of your sin and shame, tries to steal from you life and joy, you remember you have already died and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When Satan tempts you to despair, telling you you can never change, that you were made the way you are, no one can help you. You remember that the power at work to raise Christ from the dead is now at work in us who believe. When Satan encourages you to give up the fight, do what feels good, you listen for the voice of Jesus speaking in your heart, I died for you so that you might no longer live for yourself, but for the one who for your sake died and was raised. Now, of course, we're sinners, more than we would like, more than we realize. But there is something new, not something, there is someone at work within us. The Sexuality Study Committee report put it well when it said, we name our sins, we are not named by them. How could it be any other way? There is nothing more basic and fundamental to your identity, just in human terms, than your name. We have nine kids. That's we're running out of. We're going to the apocrypha or something to find <laughs> Bible names, and then you start to get confused. We got a. We're thinking of Joseph for one of our kids, but we already had a Mary. You know, that's a little. <laughs> what's next, Pastor? That's a little presumptuous. It's a lot of pressure. They give somebody a name. Kevin. I'm told it's. Irish for gentle, handsome, and kind. <laughs> That's what I told myself. You, your name, you put your name on your papers all through school. You have your name on your ID. It's what people call you, and you know to turn around. It's what shows up on their phone. That's what you write on your check. That's what goes on every official ID you possess. Your name. So remember how we were so named in our baptism. Baptism is a rite of initiation and inclusion and belonging. It is a naming ritual. See, we have two sacraments. One in which we are passive and we receive, and the other in which we are active and renew. Of course we would baptize children into the triune name. Because the act of naming is something all of us have received. Someone gave us a name. Someone marked us out with that name. And so we do with our children and with those who come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are marked out with the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a naming ritual. God wants us to live out the glorious name He put on all of us with the waters of baptism. 
We sometimes think, I have to change, and once I'm changed, and I believe that I'm changed, I'll be happy. But the gospel says, of course, be happy. In Christ, you're justified. In Christ, you can be changed. So now go out and change. You know the fundamental New Testament ethical motivation. You can summarize it very simply. Be who you are. This is who you are in Christ. Now live like it. We have every reason, Presbyterian Church in America, every reason to be the happiest, holiest people on earth with all that God has given us, all the truth that He has entrusted to us. That's the motivation. Live out your name. You ever say that to your kids? I say that once in a while, just to sort of feel, you know, I'll say, remember, as my kids were running their last track meets of the year, and one of them's graduating, I want you to remember three things. You're fast, I love you, and you're a de Young. <laughs> I don't know what the de Young meant other than you're not as fast as you think, but <laughs> say, you go out into the world, you, you, you got a name. This is our family name. We have the same family name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and so we can live like it. Brothers and sisters, do not live for fear of man, people-pleasing, angry, sex-crazed, self-absorbed, pity party, you. Yeah, we all got that, but that you died. That old man has no place in this world. He kicked the bucket. Didn't you hear? That old you is in the grave with your sins, dead, nailed to the cross, buried. So do not look at yourself with so little hope. You are a new creation in Christ. Believe it. Enjoy it. Live like a Christian and look at people like Christians should. Let's pray. Father in heaven, now do your work by your Spirit to bring these things to our hearts. Now, throughout the evening, the days, the weeks, that we may hear the sermon you want each of us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.